0: We're in the book of Judges. It is slightly unprecedented. We have never, I have never, in the five years I've been the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church, preached back-to-back Old Testament books. But I realized it was going to happen sooner or later, since there's only 27 New Testament books. And eventually someone once told me, you're going to run out if you keep going Old Testament, New Testament, Old, New. I was like, that's, that's true. So I thought, considering we just finished the book of Joshua after 18 sermons, going verse by verse through that, Um, that it would be well placed to tackle the book of Judges after the book of Joshua. It is, if you're not familiar, it is a book that I feel like HBO or some TV producers could get a hold of. I mean, this is viewer discretion advised. It is leave the kids at home, not safe for the whole family, and yet just what we, I think, need to hear and be reminded of. And so today... Just as within, just as when we had the first Joshua sermon, uh, there's always a a little bit longer, a significantly longer introduction before we start tackling the the verse by verse. And we will get through some of the verses today, but it will be a, a longer introduction to really set this up for us, to frame this for us today. And so when we think of the book of Judges, I think what's interesting is that none of the individuals in the book that we think of as judges, are actually specifically identified as, our English word is translated, as a judge. In fact, the the title, the the judge, is only used of a specific individual one time. In 1127, when Jephthah is giving the speech before the Ammonite delegation, we see it used, but it doesn't refer to Jephthah. That title, the judge, it refers to Yahweh. It refers to God. And, And so where we see the term judges used in 2, chapter 2, 16 and 19, we see it used there in a general designation of, of the leaders of Israel. And so from that general designation, we infer that these leaders described in the book may also so be designated. But the verb that's being used when we see it used to judge is only used a handful of times. The verb to judge is used to describe the activity of four primary and five secondary judges. And of all those judges, those to be considered judges, really only Deborah is the one to have served in what might be understood as any sort of judicial capacity in chapter 4, 4 to 5. Rather, what we see and what we will see in the book of the Judges is that these individuals functioned much more as deliverers than they had any sort of legal function. So when we think of the noun that is applied for the leaders of this nation back in, or farther ahead in chapter 2, 16 and 19, the author of the book of Judges offers us a few clues on how that noun is applied and how we should understand it. And in 2, 16 to 19, he uses the phrase, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved or who delivered Israel out of the hands of their enemies. And so from that statement in chapter 2, 16 to 19, we can derive a few very important details about who these people are that we're going to be learning about. From that statement, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved or who delivered Israel out of the hands of its enemies. The source of the judge's authority is from God. That's important to understand. Every single individual that we're going to be examining in the weeks to come, the months to come, their source of authority is from God and God alone. Their power comes from God and God alone. That's important. But second, their purpose. Their purpose isn't really judicial at all, despite our English word, judges, the title of this book. Their purpose is to act as saviors and deliverers for the people when they are oppressed by foreign enemies. In fact, probably a more appropriate title for this book would be the the book of the deliverers or the book of the saviors, rather the book of the judges. Uh, The New American Commentary is so emphatic at this point. The commentator says, and I quote, our English term... Judge obviously fails to capture the nature of the activity and the role of Israel's leaders in this book. The individuals here, their primary role is not in a legal capacity. Their primary role is usually when invading armies come to drive them out. To drive them out. And that's going to happen many, many times in this book. One of my favorite things that I really appreciate, and I usually get a little bit more on the academic side in these introductions, I know some of you like it, some of you probably don't, but is to examine the extra-biblical sources that we have, which lend itself credibility to this story. And Judges is a hard book, there's not a lot of extra-biblical sources, but that doesn't mean there isn't any at all. In fact, there is some, and some we have looked at from our introduction to the book of Joshua. And the first one I want to throw up on the slide is the Merneptah Do we have a picture of that? We do have, there it is. That's the Merneptah Now, this is why I'm showing this to you. The Merneptah was first discovered in 1896 at Thebes. It's currently housed at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Merneptah was the son of Ramses II. He succeeded his father in ruling Egypt in the late 13th century BC. This would have been the 1200s, if you're familiar with how that works. And the Stella here, we date it somewhere between 1212 and 1209 BC. Now, the significance of this Stella is this, is that it gives us a picture of life in Canaan and Syria at the end of the 13th century. Not only that, but it's one of the earliest historical mentions of the nation of Israel. That the people we're learning about in the book of Judges, okay? We read this book, who were real people, who lived in a certain geographical area at a specific time, are mentioned here. In a totally non-biblical source, like the Merneptah It's one of the earliest, earliest archaeological examples of Israel being mentioned as a, a nation. And, and this is significant because it lends itself credibility. That when we read these Bible stories, and some of them are going to be really exciting, I know many of you have heard the stories of Samson and, and Gideon, but to remember that these are more than just words on a page. That these are real people. Real lives, real feelings, real emotions, and oh, by the way, a, a real God who inspired the author of this book. Who can be trusted? The second example, and I did not mention this in the introduction to Joshua because that introduction is probably way too long. I'm guessing that's why I didn't mention it, but are the Armana letters. Can you throw the tablets up there? That's them right there. So the Armana letters are 14th century BC documents written in cuneiform. And what they did is they contained diplomatic correspondence between the Canaanite city kings and the Egyptian pharaohs, their, their overlords. And the Armada tablets are really valuable. They're very helpful because they give us a valuable, helpful glimpse of the socioeconomic political landscape within Canaan prior to the Israelite occupation and, of course, in these letters back and forth between the the Canaanite city kings and their egyptian overlords we we see a lot of names that are very familiar to us names that are mentioned in the biblical stories of joshua and judges but what we also see and perhaps the most helpful is we see a mention in these letters of a group of people who many scholars believe are Once again, one of the earliest references to the Hebrew people living in the land at that time, which, oh, by the way, corresponds with the biblical account of Joshua and Judges. I'm showing these things, I'm bringing these things up because I think they're really interesting and cool, but more so because it lends itself more credibility. The story that we have that we're going to be learning about is more than just words on a page. They're real people, real lives, real feelings, real emotions. And oh, by the way, this is a real God who has inspired this account for us. And so we find ourselves in the book of Judges, chapter 1. And it says, after the death of Joshua. And I'm just going to stop right there because I have more introduction, more introductory remarks to make. After the death of Joshua. That's, that's how it is set up here. And this is a transitional time for the people. Anytime a leader dies, it is challenging. Who's going to lead? Who's going to fill his shoes? I mean, this was an issue that at the beginning of our Joshua study, it was the exact same. In fact, Judges 1-1 and Joshua 1-1 are the exact same opening line. Except in Joshua, it says, after the death of Moses. And here it says, after the death of Joshua. A huge transitional period of time in this pre-monarchy era, the nation of Israel. And, and so we see the political authority passing from a central figurehead now to separate tribes. And, and how the process of decision-making worked out, we, we really don't know. But we no longer have a central leader anymore. Now the tribes are the shot callers. And to, to paint that picture, because I like seeing things too. I have a, a graph. Can you throw that graph up? And and this graph is based upon our information from Joshua chapter 7, 7 cha- Joshua chapter 7:14 to 18. We don't have a central leader, but what we have is this. The the large letter A, as you can see with the corresponding graph in the chart below, represents Israel. Letter B represents the 12 tribes, and then of course within each individual tribe you had clans and we Discuss this back from our time in Joshua. Sometimes the clans, even though they were the same tribe, they didn't get along too well. Okay. Sometimes people of the same local church, sometimes they don't get along too well either. Nothing new. And then, of course, within the clans, you had these subcategories, these subclans, or the phrase that we see in Joshua, the house of my father. But this is the political structure now of the day. There's, There's no longer Joshua at the top of this pyramid. Now it's Israel. Israel and the tribes. The nation, the tribes, the clans, the subclans that is the house of my father. And throughout this story, we see Israel united together at times, and then we see Israel not getting along so well, and, and different tribes fighting against other tribes, lots of tension. Of course, this recalls the story of Jephthah, if you're familiar with that. And they didn't play well at times together. They didn't get along well. But not only is this a book about a nation in this transitional period, this is also a book about a nation in crisis. A a nation that is determined to destroy itself. In this book, you're going to see some of the most self-destructive, dysfunctional behavior you've probably ever seen before. Israel is going to drop the ball a whole lot. They don't have leadership, big question mark, kind of who's in charge. We'll see that today. But we see this throughout the story is even... Even when leadership is given to individuals, they don't want it. Many of the men are very passive, and they, they don't want to have anything to do with it. Even when it's thrust upon them, they're like, I don't want it, okay? But we need your help. Someone's got to step up. I don't want to help. I don't want to I don't want to be that guy. We see the, the tribes, the clans, hesitating to help each other, hesitating to get involved when the nation needed everyone to come together. And then, oh, by the way, on the other hand, talking about self-destructive behavior, the opposite is true. We have the, the a people over here, and the leadership would be thrust upon them. They don't want it, and then the other people, if they didn't get asked, if they didn't get asked to be in charge. They got mad, they got jealous, they got upset, and they would have these self-destructive responses. And oh, by the way, when an individual would come forward, would step up, when strong leadership would finally emerge. It usually was the worst kind possible. It patterned itself often after the worst aspects of the Canaanite city-state leaders, which preoccupied itself with personal advantage. They were power-hungry. And so the narrator of the book of Judges is very, very concerned with Israel's spiritual say. I say the narrator of the book of Judges because we don't know for sure. Most people, if they had to guess, they say... Samuel probably was the one who wrote this book. Samuel and his mentor Eli, they were contemporaries, at least for some of the the judges. But we don't know for sure. But one thing that is for sure is that the narrator of this book is very concerned with the spiritual well-being of Israel. Very concerned. See, in, in the book of Judges, in fact, even in the early parts of 1 Samuel, there is not even a single mention of the Israelites gathering together for worship. Not even once to worship Yahweh. Any type of central shrine, the the tribes held, any type of religious festivals in common. No mention whatsoever. I said the narrator is very concerned with the spiritual state of Israel, so much so that On seven seven different occasions, we see this various yet similar repetition where the narrator says, the descendants of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot God and they served other gods. Seven different times that's mentioned. The descendants of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot God and they served other gods. We're going to see in this book such a pattern of self-destructive behavior, just repeating itself, where twice in the book we are reminded how everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In case you thought moral relativism was just a 2018 issue, it's not. And this pattern of self-destructive behavior It's just going to keep happening and happening. And it usually looks like this. The people abandon God. That's step one. Step two, God raises up a foreign power to oppress them, right? To beat their butts. That's step two. Step three, well, the people, well, they need God at that moment. So then they cry out to God for deliverance. And then step four, God is good. God is gracious. God raises up a deliverer, a judge for them to drive out the foreign oppressors. And then they're good for a while and then they go back like a dog returning to his vomit to their old way. You can see that this really is a a period of the dark ages for Israel. And, And despite, oh by the way, God raising up all these deliverers, our English word judges, despite God raising up all of these people not a single one of their deliverers, their judges, really had any type of moral or spiritual leadership to deal with the real enemy. To deal with the real enemy. To denounce the sin and the idolatry that really was at the root of the issue. See, when the people would cry out to God for deliverance, it really was just dealing with the surface level. Yes, there's foreign oppressors here, but why are there foreign oppressors? Why are things going so, so badly? well because there's sin in the camp right there's idolatry happening and not a single one of these judges at any times ever tells them to denounce such idolatry to return to god to repent i think it serves as a good reminder for us like our real enemy is christians it's not isis Our real enemy is not terrorism. Our, Our real enemy as Christians is not radical Islam. Our real enemy is sin. That's our real enemy. And it attacks us. And it deceives us. And it pulls us away from God. And usually it often does this without us even realizing until we're so far gone. So these people, the judges, the deliverers, Far being agents, far being, far from being agents of spiritual change, they really ended up being, in many cases, part of the problem rather than part of the solution. It was a very dark time. And so, as we said, after the death of Joshua, verse 1, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said to Judah, Rather, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory of law to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory of law to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 of them at the Zeke. Stop there. transitional period a nation of crisis they don't have a leader anymore moses he made arrangements to have a successor joshua didn't make these arrangements now before you're too hard on joshua the text doesn't actually say that he was wrong for doing this he didn't make arrangements maybe he should have made arrangements maybe things would have worked out better that way but he doesn't make arrangements but the text to be fair it doesn't also criticize him for not making arrangements But Joshua, it's not like he didn't do anything. He did a ton. Joshua paved the way. Joshua really did all the back-breaking work. He did all the heavy lifting. He fought all these battles. In Joshua, we see the conquest. In the book of the Judges, we see the settlement of the land. We see the settlement of the land. Do we have that map? I think we have that map. I want to show you a quick picture. This is what it looks like. I don't know how well you can see that, but the green area is what they've secured, right? They've secured, like, the vast majority of the area. The, the, out, the non-green area is the area that they still have to settle, especially the, the side uh, toward the, the Mediterranean on the west. That area, still going to take that area. But for the most part, Joshua's done all the back-breaking work. He's done the heavy lifting. They just need to go forth in faith and obedience to God and take the land. And so... The issue right away, and of course, we're going to have this whenever a leader dies, is, well, who's going to be in charge? How are we going to work this out? Who's going to go forth? Who's going to lead the way? That's the question, and they don't know. They don't know. They inquired the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? That's verse 1. They don't know what to do. But they give us a great example when we find ourselves in a situation and we don't know what to do. They ask God, God, what do you want us to do? We don't, we don't know. I don't know what to do. God, make it clear to us. Show us, God. Do you pray like that? They're always trying to just go it alone. Figure it out yourself. See, that doesn't make much of God. That makes much of you. And so right away, they, they pray. They inquire of God, what do you want us to do? Who do you want to lead the way? Who do you want to go first? And God says, Judah. I want Judah to go. In fact, the the opening four verses hold out such promise for this story. Like, things are going really well. There aren't a lot of really positive examples in this book. This is one of the few positive examples. Like, we just end the story here, we'd be good. Unfortunately, before I even make it to the end of the sermon today, things are going to go terribly bad. But this opening scene offers so much promise. And so God says, Judah. Judah says, excellent. And then they ask Simeon, Simeon, do you want to come with us? Simeon, come with us. Help us fight. And and if you help us fight, we'll, we'll help you fight. Excellent. And so they form this tribal, intertribal kind of alliance of sorts. And it's Only natural when you look at it a little bit more closely, especially the relationship, the historical relationship between Judah and Simeon. Well, well, one, Judah, one of the biggest tribes, Simeon, one of the smallest tribes, Simeon's actual land allocation was within the borders of the tribe of Judah. We know that from Joshua chapter 19, one to nine. Simeon, one of the tiniest tribes. In fact, in less than 200 years, they will cease to even exist as a separate tribe. It'll just be Judah there in the south. But I thought this was interesting. I'm not sure if I even knew this. The other reason I think this is a very natural relationship that Judah would seek out Simeon is that when you go back to Jacob, remember Jacob, the trickster, tricked his brother kind of out of his birthright, then tricked his dad to give him the blessing. And then, of course, later on, Jacob was tricked by his uncle Laban. He wanted to marry Rachel. Then he gets hitched with Leah. And then he's got to, you know, marry... Rachel it's Jacob who has 12 sons Jacob whose 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel who are kind of the political authority right now and it was Leah's two boys not half brothers full brothers who happened to be Judah and Simeon which I thought was interesting that's Genesis chapter 29 33 35 so a very natural both biological and just geographically where they're at that they would seek out Simeon and so they seek them out they go fight the bad guys in the highlands, the the end of chapter 1 will focus on the, the battles in the lowland, but this one is the battles in the highlands. And they go, they seek them out, they kick butt and uh, win the battle. And things are great. And then we come to verse 5. And they found Adonai Bezek, the, the king, maybe the governor, that might have been his name, it was also a title, meant Lord of... Bezik, they found him, Bezik, and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And then in verse 6, Adonai Bezek, he fled, but they pursued him and they caught him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off. He used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Verse 8. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. The narrator, be it Samuel, be it someone else, restrains himself from telling us how we should think about what we just read about this seemingly cruel and unusual punishment and rather allows Adonai Bezik to offer his own ironic interpretation of the events. And he interprets them theologically. This is the pagan Canaanite city king. And what does he say? God's repaying me. Because I, I did the same thing, if not worse, to a lot of other dudes. I treated them like dogs. Let them live like animals underneath my table, picking up scraps. That's his interpretation. But who is it that he's saying? He says, God is repaying me. Is this Yahweh? Is this someone else? The, the phrase is rather ambiguous. We don't know for sure. I don't, we don't know if he's having like a come to Jesus type of moment. I highly doubt it. Rather, he's just acknowledging that probably his own Canaanite God is repaying him. But that's what I think is ironic about this, that even, even Adonai Bezik's comments, even people in the ancient world perceived life theologically. Thought of this as he's being paid back, for his treatment and then what happens in the next verses is somewhat ambiguous we're not sure specifically the connection between verses five to five six and seven and verse eight at least not chronologically because it says that he flees this Canaanite king he he goes he's taken rather that's the word he's taken to jerusalem and then afterwards the people of judah they come and they set fire to the city and they take it seemingly so the question is well who took him to Jerusalem? Did Judah keep him alive, and then take the king with him, and then on the way they defeated more bad guys? Or maybe did he escape? Or he was he taken by his own people? And then how did he die? It Doesn't say how he died. Maybe it was infection. Maybe he bled out from his injuries. We don't know. We don't know what happened. But there's a problem from this story, and the problem is. And this is really part of the major theme of the book of Judges. And if you're taking notes, this is what you really want to remember. The theme of this story is the canonization of Israel. That's it. The canonization of Israel. That's the problem. The problem is, at this point in the story, is that God gave Israel very specific commands. You go in. This goes all the way back to the time of Moses. You go into the land, you kill everyone. You kill everyone. And of course, part of the rationale, and Moses tells us this in the book of Deuteronomy, why he gives this command is because Israel has a really bad track record where they get involved with the sins of the people. They get involved in the pagan worship of the people. And so to help prevent that, one of many reasons why he says this, but he says, when you go in, you kill everyone. So problem number one, they don't kill him. They should have killed him immediately. Problem two this cruel and unusual treatment of Adonai Bezek They cut off his thumbs, they cut off his toes. Now, this might seem cruel and unusual to us, but in the ancient world, it wasn't. In fact, by his own testimony, he's like, yeah, I've done this to like 70 other dudes. It, it, it wasn't cruel and unusual. This was a very common practice in the ancient Near East. When you would defeat an enemy, you'd take their king, their leader, their governor, their general, whoever, and you would embarrass them, you would humiliate them, you would mutilate them. Very common practice. Like, everyone is doing it. But that's the problem. Israel, you're not supposed to be like everyone else. Church, you're not supposed to be like everyone else. That's the problem. The first four verses, everything's going well. And by the time we get to verse 8, we're seeing this, as I said, the theme, the canonization of Israel. Where Israel is not being so much set apart as they're looking much more like the world. They're not supposed to be. It's cruel and unusual to us. Very common back then. No, they should have killed him instantly. They're wrong for not killing him instantly, for allowing him to live. They're also wrong for mutilating him, for torturing him. That's what the Canaanites do. You're not Canaanites. You're the covenant people of God. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to look different. And so that's the issue as this cycle seemingly already begins to shift gears. As I said, the first four verses held out such hope that this story maybe, just maybe, would turn out okay. The canonization of Israel is the theme of the book of Judges. That is, we're going to see Israel conforming to the world around them. Not being set apart. Not being different. And it's within this theme that we see many examples and applications for the relevance of Christianity within America. Like within the church. In which we live in a day and an age that so many people that claim to be the covenant people of God, right? The new covenant people of God, the church. So many people that claim to be Christians seemingly have forgotten God and they take the grace of God for granted. And in which we are becoming more and more like the pagan world around us today. Today we have our own canonization of the church, in which we're preoccupied with material prosperity, we're apathetic about theology, we're apathetic about right belief, we refuse to obey God, and His call for us to be, Different, to be set apart from the world? We are divisive? I hate that when that happens, but we are. We're divisive. Even within the covenant people of God. Bitterness forms. We get mad at each other. Don't want to talk to other people. I love Lynchburg City Church, but we're not immune from these things. We're not immune from divisiveness. And it can happen to any one of us. Get mad? You should go talk to that person. I don't want to go talk to them. Okay. Getting mad and upset over the littlest, smallest things sometimes? Why are, you, why are you so upset? He was talking to her. He was talking to who? You know, Joe. <laughs> oh. Oh, he was talking to her. He was talking to her. Okay. That can happen. So we find divisiveness. We find ourselves morally compromising on things we, we know are so black and white that God says, do it this way, not this way. Okay, so, so by this way and not this way, you meant like, no, no, I meant do it this way. Okay. Okay. But maybe, like, if I was in a situation like this, then it would... Like, everyone's always wanting to, like, be the exception to the rules. So much when God makes it so clear, like, do it my way. But what if, what if, like, you know, and we just throw out these reasons. We're morally compromising. Looking to justify things rather than just repent and turn to God. And so, as a result, what we do and what we have and what we find is we have Christians and then, oh, by the way, non Christians who are almost indistinguishable from each other. Oh, you're a Christian? Really? I would have had no idea. I have a chaplain friend like that. I shouldn't even use the term friend. I have a chaplain acquaintance like that. Drives me nuts. Like, you would have no idea this guy was a chaplain, let alone a Christian, except the cross he wears, he wears on his uniform. Makes me sick. And there's people like that, right? Maybe you know people like that. Maybe sometimes you are people like that. Indistinguishable from non-Christians. That's a problem. That's a problem that's not good. And what has been the propensity to to happen, to say, is to displace the phrase, thy kingdom come, with my kingdom come. My kingdom come! Right? Because this is the the day and the age where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Like I said, moral relativism was a new concept. This is going on here during the days of the judges. It is a dark time. And you say, how did this happen? Like, how did they get to this place? And I think my answer is, is like little by little. H- how did we get, like we're, so, like, we're coming off the heels of when the general Joshua was leading us. So how do we go from there to here? Like, some of you, just like three weeks ago, we, we finished Joshua, it was three weeks ago. Joshua chapter 24, the final chapter where Joshua gives one of his more famous speeches. He says, choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. And the people say, we're serving God too. And, and they've literally gone from like hero to zero. From Joshua 24, like at the very end of Joshua's life, and, and now we're here. Like how did we get to this point? I think we got to the point very little by little i don't think it was immediate usually never is it's usually a very gradual shift in the same way it is in our lives i i I don't think that many people wake up one day and think you know what i just think i'm not going to read my bible for the next six months or wake up one day you know what I think I'm just not going to gather with the people of God for the next year. Or, you know what? Wake up. I think I'm just not going to pray anymore to God. That, that is not normally how it happens. It's usually a very gradual shift, very little by little. Because the devil, he's, he's real sneaky like that. And he will come and he will exploit that all day long. And, and oftentimes it's for good reasons. What happens is we allow our priorities to, to kind of be flipped upside down, and we think, ooh, well, it's just an extra busy week. This is common. I'm not saying this is always. but This is usually a common thing, right? So it's an extra busy week, so then it's, well, I've got to move some stuff around, so how can I fit everything in? And so then we take this off the shelf, right? And then we take this off the shelf, and then we take this off the shelf, and okay. Well, it was just for this one day. It was just for this one week. I think the devil won't exploit that. Oh, he will. He'll come. Or have you not heard that he is like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you? He is seeking to devour you. How did they get this? Everything was so good at the end of Joshua. Now they're here. How How did that happen? Very gradually. Little by little. Little by little. And now they're here. And now we find Israel in a time of not just national decline, not just this transitional period. We find them in a time of crisis. Despite, despite, oh by the way, their promise, their covenant in Joshua 24 to obey God, to follow God, now they've turned away from God. Now they've begun to worship other gods. They've made other things idols in their lives. You see, Judges is not about how great Israel's heroes were during the early Iron Age period. It's not. It's not about guys like Samson or Gideon at all. This book is about Yahweh. This book is about God and how gracious God is in his determination to preserve his people by answering their pleas and providing deliverance. That's what this book is about. Amidst this most self-destructive of behavior. The people, they forget God. And then God raises up foreign oppressors. And then, well, now they remember God, now. Then they cry out to God. Now they need God. So God, being a good God and a gracious God, raises up a deliverer for the moment. And saves them. And then then they're good for a while. Bottom line, God is the true hero of this story. I don't know if you've ever thought about it from that perspective. Usually you think about all these military heroes. like They're not the heroes. Oftentimes they're more part of the problem than they are the solution. This book is about God, that he is a good God, that he is a gracious God. He is the true hero he and he alone that's what i wanted to say today that's what i want us to think about if anything this book will serve i think as a warning for us these people did not get here overnight things did not get this bad overnight the canonization of israel them being constantly pulled to be like to look like all the other nations Oh, yeah, that happens to us. That happens to the church every single day. When you open your computer or turn on the TV, when you browse through Netflix or Hulu, when you listen to certain types of music, when you interact with members of the opposite sex, it happens every single day. Every single day, the enemy is at your door. He's at your gate. And I think what we glean from this this book, what we will glean is, Don't go there. Don't be like them. Well, we cut off his his thumbs and we cut off his toes. It's not that cruel and unusual. He even said so. Like, everyone's doing it. That's the problem. You're not supposed to be like everyone else, church. You're not. We're not. No, God is the true hero in this story. He is more gracious and more good than... These people deserve. And it's just as true for us today. So, as the band comes, I'd like to pray for us. Lord, we love you. And we praise you because you are God. Because you lived the life we could not live. Because you died the death we should have died. Because you paid the price we could not afford to pay. And Lord, I pray that you would protect us, that, that these stories and the stories we'll be hearing in the weeks and months to come will serve as a, a real warning, warning to us, God. This shift did not happen overnight. The shift is gradual. The shift is subtle. Oh, that we might be on guard against the works of the enemy, that you might protect us, Lord. Help us, Jesus. And thank you, God, for, for being good and gracious. Even in the midst of these people breaking covenant. Yeah, they got their, their tails beat, but thank you, Lord, for sending these deliverers. And thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, the once and for all deliverer and Savior for us.